0: New
1: world. Exocast.
0: <laughs> Exocast Exocast Exocast
1: Exocast Exocast
0: Exocast Exocast
2: Exocast Exocast, Exocast. Hello, 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 and welcome to the 28th installment of Exocast, the only podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. So returning from a month's break, we have a jam-packed show of exoplanetary goodness for you this, this time around. Um, Hugh will be chatting with a special guest. I will be discussing alien techno signatures. Uh, and Hannah will be surveying the month's news. But before we launch, we should start with commissioning. So uh, we should meet our intrepid team. Uh, I am Andrew Rushby, and for just a few more days, uh, I'm a postdoctoral fellow in astrobiology at NASA's Ames Research Centre in Northern
0: California. And as always, I am joined by... I am Hugh Osborne. I'm a postdoc in South France, in Marseille, where I study Plato and transiting exoplanets.
1: And I'm Hannah Wakeford. I'm a Giaconi Fellow at Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, and I characterise the atmospheres of exoplanets.
2: So as I mentioned uh, earlier, we took a month off recently, which, was that our first break in 28 episodes? I think we've done pretty well. I we've been pretty consistent. We had one before. We had
1: one before at one Christmas when we couldn't get anyone. It's It's a scheduling thing. We're all across the world. And it's just been a, it's been a chaotic month. I mean, Andrew, you are in Australia. What I was,
2: uh, I had the, yeah, what happened exactly? Um, it wasn't entirely. It was quite a short-term thing, a short notice, uh, no, short notice event. Um, but it was the National Science Week, which is uh, which is held in Australia every year, uh, I, and I was invited out there uh, to talk about NASA, to talk about exoplanet science, talk about the Kepler Space Telescope. I Had the privilege of visiting four cities: Brisbane, Adelaide, Hobart in Tasmania, and Sydney for like less than a day. Um, so it was really a, f- a flying visit, but a huge. A huge amount of work, a lot of fun, and um, yeah, I had, a, I had a fantastic time talking science with everyone out there.
0: It sounds pretty rock and roll, like four-date tour uh, of Australia. Exactly. And, and you uh, went with with quite a few scientists as well, right? There were quite a few of
2: you. Yeah, there were a few from Ames, um, some folks from Space Telescope, uh, Jonathan Frayne for example, from there. Um, so yeah, they spread us out across Australia, and um, it did feel like a bit of a a rock show at one point we were in a, in a place that had a green room uh, and you know, I was, I was playing up. I wasn't going to come out until i had only blue M&Ms and a bath full of Evian and I was fully (laughs) getting into it. Um, It was, it was, it was great. But the, uh, the audience feedback was fantastic. It just seemed like there was a really good base knowledge of, of science anyway, maybe a a bit sampling bias, of course, but uh, people, people are excited about exoplanets the
0: world over.
1: And Hugh, you've been in uh, California this whole time as well. And you just got back to France.
0: Yeah, well, I got back a few weeks ago, but yeah, another reason it didn't really happen a month ago for Exocast is that I took quite a long holiday traveling around California, which was very nice. Um, I forgot all about Exoplanets for three weeks, which was, which was pretty cool. Which is much needed um,
1: every now and again, I think. Yes,
0: I think so, yeah. <laughs> and
2: a beautiful part of the world to, to do that in as well.
0: It was gorgeous, yeah, you know, going up, um, up the Sierras and down the Pacific coast, it was, it was amazing, yeah. What about you, Hannah? Where have you been?
1: I have been, I spent all my summer in England, um, just...
2: Nothing wrong with that.
1: Doing the academic talk tour, uh, as you do, and then uh, back here, just hit the ground running. I lots of students and projects that I had to get started and finish and all of that stuff. We we held a data bunker for two solid weeks, which involves, we have a project, we have a team of people doing that project, and we bring them all into one room and make sure it gets bloody well done. <laughs> um so that you know doing the bunker we just call it a bunker and we lock That's ourselves in and uh we we have you know snacks and donuts and it ends with a nice bottle of champagne uh just to make sure that everybody doesn't ever look at stuff for at least three days um but the paper's almost finished fully written now so just oh, trying to get stuff off my plate has been what's happening i've got a huge list of stuff that i've got to do and i'm just like okay we're just gonna get rid of things by focusing on them for now so just lots. <laughs> I need a, I need a free week holiday in California, please.
2: Yeah, don't we all? <laughs> don't we all?
1: But I, I think it is about time that we introduce our guest, who is also very familiar with the California coastline. Uh, and Hugh, do you, want to, do you want to kick us off there?
0: Yeah, so this month we're joined by Dr. Dan Langerhausen, who's a fellow at the University of Bern. Um,
3: so welcome, Dan. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Good to see you.
1: <laughs> I would see. like to say that he used air quotes there. <laughs> um,
0: and you're also a sidecomer, right? You have like a side gig, uh, including with the Explainables. So, uh, which hat are you going to wear today? I wonder.
3: Uh, today I'm calling in from the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard. Last week I was in New York City speaking at Astronomy on Tap, New York City, and the days before that I was in Goddard giving an Explainable Science Communication Workshop. So i love to talk about science too as you guys do
0: <laughs> so a bit of both um yeah it sounds like you're doing a rock and roll tour a bit like hannah and andrew i feel a little bit left out over this, this summer you want a holiday here <laughs> Oh, english summer never is right um so yeah, so Dan, what what aspects of exoplanets is, is it you study?
3: So I started with observation. So I have an observational background. So like a long time ago as an undergrad student, I accepted the challenge to eventually observe transits in the infrared. And I tried to do that from the ground, which looking back was probably not the best idea. So I spent a lot of my early career trying all sorts of instruments from... Mostly the Keck Telescope and the VLT Telescope. So really every new near infrared instrument that was commissioned, I tried to get my hands on and try this out. But um, eventually I surrendered and uh, realized that stuff does not really work from the ground. Because if you want to see all the elements or all the molecules that we have in our own atmosphere and exoplanet's atmosphere, you probably want to get above that atmosphere. And that's how I got into the probably the topic we want to talk about most today, Sophia, the flying telescope. Or did I spoil it already?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna say that most people, when you, when you when you kind of think about how we observe exoplanets, you think either we, we take a telescope on the ground or we take a telescope that's in space. And most people don't really consider that there's kind of a third option. Which, as you said, is 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 something like Sophia. So, do you want to tell us what is what is Sophia exactly?
3: Yeah. So, uh, like, like the title of my my uh, science slams or my astronomy on tap is always astronomers need to get high when they look for alien worlds. So that's basically the bottom line of it. So the higher we get, the easier it is to observe our exoplanets. And. Um, Usually we go to space, right? Everyone or most of your listeners probably know about the Kepler telescope or the great work that Hannah, for example, does with the Hubble Space Telescope. So usually you go to space just because a lot of the uh, radiation gets actually absorbed high up in the atmosphere, especially if you're a UV astronomer, you really have to go above the ozone layer. But um, there's a certain window in the infrared where most of the infrared radiation penetrates down to about 12, sometimes even 10 kilometers in the Earth's atmosphere. So you really just need to get up to the altitudes of, let's say, a little bit higher than a commercial airplane to basically be in a space-based environment. And that's the fact that SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, actually leveraged. So we put a telescope on the plane, plain and simple, and then go up there where the infrared light um, comes down to you know inside our atmosphere, and then we have a space telescope that comes home every morning.
0: What What are some of the challenges? Because I imagine when you have a ground-based telescope, you, you don't need you don't need to worry about it moving around. So what are the challenges of, of, of doing that? Of going in a in a jet plane and observing? Oh,
3: there are a bunch of uh, uh, engineering problems. The first is usually on a plane you put 300 sacks of water in one or well, a couple of rows. So the, the, weight, the weight distribution on a plane is usually uh, different from just putting a 16-tonne telescope in one end of the plane and then try to, you know, put the batteries in other planes so that the plane doesn't break, in other so that the plane doesn't break down. Why don't they sell tickets? Yeah, right? Just 300 people on board to, to as counterweight for the telescope. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, then Another one obviously is pointing. That's usually what the people think first about, you know, I mean Everyone knows if you're on a plane, how it shakes and you know got turbulence and whatnot. So can you even point the telescope uh, nicely And this is really well studied and, and well controlled this problem. So first order really inertia keeps the telescope Pointed at the star. So there's a counterweight and the telescope is basically swimming on a thin thin oil film So just like the coffee when you brake in your car stays in the same place, the telescope stays pointing at the star um, and then there's active and passive damping, so this is uh, one of the challenges. The others is that the telescope is not really moving, it's not like a telescope dome in the ground-based telescope, so basically as soon as you want to point to another star the telescope or the plane has to move basically or even if you just want to follow your star over the sky the telescope has to slightly fly a, a curve or something like this. And then, basically, as soon as we start to observe, the auto or the, the telescope takes over the autopilot, so the pilots take the hands off the hands off the uh, uh, the plane, and then really the telescope is steering the uh, the plane while we observe. So these are just a few of the challenges. So, yeah. so I,
2: I guess maybe that, that mobility could be a strength as well, because um, I mean I know Sophia doesn't just fly out from California, for example, it goes to the southern hemisphere as well to observe the southern sky. So you get that you get that benefit at least.
3: Yeah, so SOFIA is a mobile platform and for many of us who observe transits now, how frustrating it is especially if you have long period planets or weird, uh, weird periods that you not always get a transit you know, to observe in Hawaii and Chile where your telescopes are. So with SOFIA you can really fly to the optimal geographic position at least in principle to uh, observe exoplanets. Uh, one funny other ideas actually, so that was like a work I did during my PhD thesis. I had a little uh, I had a um, little project with a, with the undergrad student where we actually we thought about the idea to use an external occultor with Sophia. So similar like the star shade idea, which you might have talked about before, where we put an external occulter you know with W first or orlouvoir. We thought about the idea if it's possible to bo- build one of these star shades in an orbit. And then use Sophia to fly in the shadow of this occultor, and in principle it worked. In <laughs> practice, it's, so it's really just an engineering problem. But um, so that's, that's another application in exoplanets of Sophia's, at least the theoretical application of Sophia for uh, Sophia's mobility. So,
1: how uh, long can you keep a target in view of the the plane? What's the maximum time you can point at one particular thing in the sky?
3: So that's actually one of, uh, one of the, in practice, one of the big problems for SOFIA. So in my PhD thesis I calculated one of the longest flights we could do to observe HD 8606, like this long period, I think six or eight hour transit long, um, you know, highly eccentric Jupiter planet. And for that one I calculated a flight pass we would have flown from Bangor, Maine to Marrakesh, Morocco, and would have, had, would have had ten hours on target. So in principle you can build these flight plans where you can point on one target for 10 hours but you if you tell nasa i want to take the plane to marrakesh it's not <laughs> happening so uh,
1: there's other political aspects you yes. have to get around
3: less of an in- engineering problem
1: <laughs> that's that a people problem no engineering problem there
3: so in practice sophia starts and lands most of the time from palm and since the telescope is only pointing in one direction you usually and you can fly you know let's say 10 12 hours um, can stay up for 10 to 12 hours. The maximum time on a normal flight to point at one target is five to six hours maximum. And that's already hard to schedule. There are a few um, exemptions that were made. For example, there were really cool observations of uh, Pluto occultations. So when Pluto occulted a background star, you can really get a nice, uh, uh, a nice measurement of Pluto's atmosphere. And especially at the time when New Horizon was really close by, it was great to have a ground-based truth of what New Horizon was basically observing in situ. And there was an observation of a Pluto occultation with Sophia, which basically means you need to fly in a Pluto-sized shadow on the Earth. So that was real-time calculated, where is the shadow of Pluto? Somewhere on the southern Pacific, and then Sophia flew into the shadow of, of Pluto. So this is one of the other applications for this, the mobility of Sophia. So you mentioned
0: Pluto, so I mean, Sophia is obviously looking at planetary targets, but what sort of exoplanetary science has been done on Sophia? I mean, have, and, and have you been involved in?
3: Yeah, so I basically built the science case in my PhD thesis, so I suggested, you know, what about observing transits with Sophia? And then after a while i got a couple of proposals accepted and we did the observation so i did i think about six or seven flights by now we observed hd1 nine uh, gj 1214 a couple of other even trappist recently um so in principle the idea um makes sense you know you are in a space-based environment but then as i mentioned there were these scheduling problems so oftentimes we couldn't really stay A lot of time on target so sometimes we even have just five minutes before transits and five minutes after transit in baseline then in then like usually for us in exoplanet transits the instruments are not built for our science case so hannah for example knows that from her hst observations where they do crazy things like slewing the telescope and spreading the data over the whole detector when i went to to keck you know, 10 years ago, I told them, yeah, can you please defocus the telescope for us? And they say, come on, guys, we, we're not building a 10 meter telescope with an adaptive optic instrument that you, uh, that you come right. and defocus the telescope. And they the
1: hate teles- anything that we do with them, right?
3: So in general, the problem is, like, in- astronomical instruments are built to look at a faint galaxy for 10 minutes and then go to the next one. None of them are built to look at a bright star for six hours and stay on PPM level sensitive. So this is really... And this was the key problem for SOFIA. The instruments were not built for exoplanet science. The cool thing, however, is since SOFIA is a telescope that comes home every morning, you can put the latest instrumentation on it, right? It's not like HST where you have to send, a, you know, a dangerous, a dangerous uh, space shuttle mission where they um, grab the HST and pull it into the space shuttle and then replace it, uh, the instrument with SOFIA. You can really put the newest instrumentation on board. And actually, there's a current ongoing call for proposals, so I can advertise to the team to actually maybe think about accepting our proposal. So, with a team from the University of Michigan, Emily Rauscher and uh, Michael Mayer, we proposed a dedicated exoplanet transit instrument for Sophia called Styles. <laughs> so, maybe yeah. there's hope for returning exoplanet science to Sophia with this awesome instrument.
0: It sounds like Sophia is going to be going into the foreseeable future, then, is that right?
3: Um, I mean the history of Sofia it was all there were always like vultures circling around Sofia So they were always like looming senior reviews but um, One thing is like Sofia is really The only platform that does any observations at the moment between let's say eight micron to the to the uh, uh, Millimeter wave so there's really nothing else Spitzer. I mean Spitzer does a couple of observations still, But Herschel isn't isn't observing and all the rest you can't do from the ground So if you're a mid and far infrared um, astronomer, that's really like the only, the only platform for you to do this. Especially the interstellar medium community is really depending on SOFIA. And since SOFIA has this uh, advantage to put the newest instrumentation on their really, really cool new instruments flying. So one example is a HAWK, it's like a mid-infrared imager has a um, polarimetry mode now, and these images are just gorgeous. Even if you have no idea about the science case, they're just like amazing images of the galactic center of clouds with like, all these polar polarimetry arrows in it. And so this is just really cool stuff that Sophia is doing. So I I still hope... I mean, I'm totally biased with Sophia, obviously. So I I still hope that Sophia is going to fly for, for a while.
0: Did, did you ever get bored? Right. So, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> flying. So I've been to a lot of observatories now and it's starting to like not be cool anymore. But I wonder if that's not the case for flying on a 747 jet doing observation. Has it become, uh, you know, habitual? Yeah, mundane.
3: No, I'm actually always kidding because there are like two really boring things. One is observing. I mean, everyone who observes, especially transits, when you just stare at an object, it's like pretty much one of the most boring things you can do all night long. And then like long flights on a plane are pretty boring too, right? So, so observing on Sofia basically combines two of the most boring <laughs> things you can do. But uh, no, it's still, it's still super interesting. I mean, if you, if you have a chance, just look up some YouTube videos. It's really cool to be on board as an observer, as a guest observer, you're also allowed to be, sometimes at least I was allowed to be in the cockpit for, for takeoff and landing, which is pretty cool. And just talking to the people like these, these pilots, for example, they are um, former NASA and, and Air Force uh, um, test pilots. They have tons of stories to tell, like how they flew in nine minutes from Las Vegas to L.A. And then eventually the skin of their plane got too hot and they had to skip from Mach 3 to Mach 2 and all these stories. So there's always, always cool stuff to do. There's no service, though. So I think that the first flights I did with Sofia, there wasn't even a fridge. So there was literally just like a cooling box and not even coffee machine or anything. So and then you fly for 12 hours and all you have is like a soggy sub, uh, subway sandwich that you brought with you. So and no miles since you start and land in Palmdale. You also don't collect yeah, any mileage, zero, so. zero miles. Right. <laughs> uh,
0: if they if they got 300 kilograms of water and they can't bring a coffee machine to a- a- astronomers, that's... There's something wrong in in management there. Yeah, I mean the
3: thing is it has to be FAA certified, so that coffee machine, right. you know, costs not just thirty bucks but three thousand because it has to be uh, FAA certified. So.
0: So you also have another proposal, right? To to kind of continue in a similar vein in that it's not space-based and it's not ground-based. So do you want to talk about your balloon idea?
3: <laughs> I mean, it's not just my idea. Actually, I'm just uh, uh, cannibalizing other people's idea who abandoned it. But um, so the idea is, so as, as I mentioned, you know, if we go for the, especially for infrared, so certain wavelengths, let's say, between two and five micron or two and eight micron, um, you don't really have to go to space. And there's a certain niche where you can observe from the um, stratosphere and scheduling problems with Sophia, it might make sense to think into a dedicated platform, which I think would be nice to put a telescope on a balloon. So that's why I'm looking in, into a balloon mission right now. Um, there were ideas at Goddard, at, at Ames, at JPL, so many people. There are also balloons in other wavelengths or for other uh, uh, science applications who fly, sometimes even for hundreds of days. So I think the, the record is like a hundred, around 100 day in circum polar flights, so there's a lot of applications and a lot of, a lot of science and a lot of knowledge in the last 10 years in, in uh, balloon observations. And my idea is to also build a dedicated uh, exoplanet spectroscopy balloon instrument basically. And in, in Europe, there's a, like the University of Stuttgart, who also built SOFIA. They have a little grant to invest into into this infrastructure, so there might be in the next couple of years something like an ESO for balloon telescopes. and. That's where the the people I'm working with to to eventually get an exoplanet platform on one of these balloons.
0: Sounds amazing, yeah. With, I guess these problems about stability and pointing would would be more difficult when you don't have a human up there. I assume it's not a manned balloon for a hundred days anyway.
3: <laughs> I try to convince them, but then uh, <laughs> no, no, but they are, they are other I think. The pointing is not that much of a problem. There are pointing systems. I mean, everyone knows these, you know, these things you get for your GoPro and then you put them on your car or on your, on your mountain bike. If you go downhill and you get super stabilized images. So, so they, these are almost off the shelf. You get pointing uh, stability. Also for yeah, our steady
1: cam technology is very good and completely up to date because it's being paid for by Hollywood. It's yeah. Steady cams are the easiest things to keep updating.
3: Yeah, and there were also ideas like, for example, to, that's really technical, but to observe in pupil mode so you don't really have image motion on your detector anyways. So, so this is not really a problem for our science case, the pointing stability. Other problems are more important, like for example, how do you get energy up there? Right, so if you observe, let's say you do a flight 100 days around the, you know, in winter around the South Pole there, you can't really use solar panels because there's no sun and no one lets you fly, you know, radio. A nucleate a battery around there. So how do you get energy on your balloon, right? And then for example, I want to put like a really expensive new infrared detector, you know, that costs about a million That should also maybe land softly So you don't want to you know, just crash that somewhere in the ice and then go with a snowmobile and just collect the treasure of it So these are like the more the more uh, 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 Important technical challenges. It's like recovery of the payload and how you get the energy on that board
2: like, um, during my uh, my PhD, I actually was involved in a, in a high-altitude balloon project, only just for fun. We had a GoPro. We sent up little Lego men. It was good fun. But it was always the recovery was an issue. We had the added challenge of getting it to take off and land in England, which is quite tricky because it's a small island. Um, and there's lots of weight restrictions, of course. But it was always recovery. And that's where I learned the importance of redundancies. You know, add more. <laughs> add more things. Um, but I wonder about the weight limit. Is there is there a, a weight, um, you know, kind of a weight limit imposed? Um on those flights if they're polar?
3: Um,
2: I mean, beyond beyond that of the balloon itself, I guess.
3: Um, I mean, you cannot build them uh, um, unlimitedly exactly. big. So I think like two tons is, I think that oh, wow. people who, yeah, so two tons is like really the maximum you can realistically fly. There are a lot of companies actually. So there's a big, not only to go to space, but also to go to the stratosphere. So there are about, I don't know, like a 100 companies around the world who want to sell access to the stratosphere in either way or the other. There are a couple of applications, you know, Wi-Fi from up there. Even some people who want to. I'm working with a balloon company from from Spain who want to launch to space from the stratosphere because you have the it's easier to build rocket uh, rocket engines um, that 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 work higher up in the in the in the uh, stratosphere. So um, there's a lot of applications of bringing stuff into the uh, stratosphere.
0: So I guess the main reason about going to to the stratosphere in, in either a balloon or a, or a jet plane is the cost, right? What's the typical comparison between a satellite and, uh, and a balloon?
3: Um, so for Sophia, it's actually not that much cheaper. So if you break down Sophia's lifetime costs, per observation hour and then compare it to you know Herschel or or, or Hubble it's almost it's actually even a little bit more just because Sophia doesn't observe 24-7 for example so um, and for balloon it really depends on how long you fly so so a single balloon now just maybe half a million so if you fly, you know, five nights, then it, it's cost-wise similar to ground-based telescopes. If you only fly one night, it's more, you know, cost-wise like like space telescopes. So if you if you make it if you make the, the flights longer, the the cheaper it gets, obviously. So so if we can really get these 100-day circumnuclear flights, then it becomes much cheaper. But if you only fly for one night or five nights, then it's more it's more like in in the cost ballpark of of like a space mission, so the longer, the cheaper, obviously.
0: Right. Thanks so much for coming onto the show, Dan. I hope I hope you manage to get even higher in the future for your studies of exoplanets. Uh, although, of course, we'll hear from you later when we when you hear which planet you're going to adopt. Now we'll go over to Andrew, and you're organising a conference on techno, techno signatures. Is that right? Yes.
2: Uh, I've been somehow tangentially associated with this uh, with this workshop. It's not quite my not quite my field, and there's other folks who are going to be there and contributing to it. Hopefully that will, uh, that will really advance things a little bit. But I thought it would make sense to take this opportunity on Exocast to have a little chat about techno signatures, which at first hearing, I guess, even for those of you who are in astronomy or space research now, it sounds a little esoteric, it sounds a little bit out there. Um, so I want to just take a little closer look at the concept and outline what activities are going on around the topic now, uh, including the workshop that's going on this week, in fact. So first off, if we use the same criteria to define the term as we did for biosignatures, a technosignature is just a measurable property or effect that provides scientific evidence of past or present technology instead of life, it's technology. Um, so let's say, for example, you awake on an isolated beach <clears throat> on an island surrounded by an ocean stretching out on all horizons. You have amnesia. You don't know how you got there, for example. Um, and you see, as you would on most islands on Earth these days, lots of plastic debris, non-recyclable garbage, bottles, rubber, you know, fishing nets, stuff like that. Um, so without actually seeing the industry that produced those items, you you would have evidence that it exists somewhere, and you could determine that a technologically advanced civilization probably made that stuff, even if they then forgot to clear it up. Uh, and the same concept, I guess, applies to cosmological technosignatures. Can we detect evidence of the workings of advanced industry, and then the uh, you know kind of associated intelligence that would come with that? Uh, at astronomical distances and also using current or near future telescopes and equipment. So this is a question that NASA hasn't really been very interested in uh, for the last like 25 years. Um, It was last funding uh, kind of SETI research in this area around 1992 um, since then the SETI Institute which is a, a not-for-profit kind of private research organisation also based here in Mountain View um, they've been they've been like picking up the mantle of SETI research and and you have heavy hitters that are coming in now like the Breakthrough Initiative uh, that are really accelerating things so NASA is now turning its focus back to technosignatures again and it could be because of the you know the um, research that SETI or Breakthrough have been doing but also maybe on the back of the success of Kepler and with TESS and JWST expected to provide more interesting exoplanets to look at. The question now goes from can we detect the planet to can we detect its atmosphere to can we characterize its atmosphere to can we see biosignatures to can we detect industry. So I guess it's a a logical next step and maybe we're getting there a little early but maybe it makes sense to get on the ground floor of these things. So again there's also probably some recent political developments that have made uh, made this uh, accelerated somewhat. So earlier this year, Lamar Smith, a Republican congressman from Texas and also the head of the House Science Committee proposed a bill that would uh, allocate $10 million uh, a year for technosignature research in both the 2018 and 2019 fiscal years, which is a lot of money. Um, now this is a kind of proposed line item uh, for the upcoming budget, so it's still subject to wrangling and politicking and other appropriations, probably. Um, but it's still a large sum of money for a research uh, for research into a topic that hasn't really been uh, funded by NASA for quite some time what,
0: now. The, when I hear Republican from Texas wants to look for techno signatures, I, I wonder about UFOs and what what his. Uh Yeah, Lamar Lamar Smith is
2: kind of an interesting guy. Um, He's he's got some very uh, interesting views, uh, some of which I don't uh, agree on at all. For example, his stance on climate change as the head of the science committee is a bit distressing considering how much money he takes from the oil and gas industries. But he has always been super into space for some reason. Um, And I don't know if you've ever met him or heard him talk about it. It can be a little... Unusual, some of his uh, some of ideas, and this is one of the more unusual things that he's proposed. Certainly, I would suggest he is retiring, so maybe he wants a legacy uh, that isn't just a, a political one; it's more of a scientific sci-fi one. <laughs> but uh, this seems to be not necessarily just his pet project. It's also sponsored by um, Jill Tata, who works at the SETI Institute, a lot of us know and uh, I think respect as a scientist as well. So it's not just coming from him. I should st- I should stress. Um, but, you know, NASA taking this seriously, um, the, this request really to like look into how to spend this money seriously. So there's this workshop coming up um, in Houston, Texas, 50 to 60 members of the scientific community who work in this field already. Um, so these are folks from NASA, from academia, um, from the philanthropic and private industries. Um, so they're all going to come together for the uh, the first NASA Techno Signatures workshop to kind of flesh out the current state of the field, uh, provide advice to the, the, the NASA top brass on how to spend, uh, to spend that money and to leverage current or near future assets as the asset likes to call them. So I spent you know quite a bit of time aligning this now. Um, I just want to take a step back actually and just Let's just put this in perspective and think about this in the context of science or, or astronomy or even the human journey. We're now in the situation where we can legitimately use techniques to start looking for our galactic neighbours out in the cosmos. And I think that's, that's, that's pretty exciting. Uh, it's, it seems a little, a little out there, maybe a little left field, but we're at the stage where we can now do that. And I think that in itself is quite exciting. It's an extraordinary situation. And therefore, I guess the landscape of the research is kind of extraordinary. Um, so, you know, one issue that's always present when it comes to this or these kind of SETI topics is how, how can we consider um, or like rank or order all the possible techno signatures that are out there, you know, with only human priors to go on, right? When we only have us as, as the, that, that one data point, um, you know, how can we consider other types of intelligences um, or even relate to those intelligences and how they communicate, how they might want to make their present known or not, um, or we might not even recognize them as life, of course. So you know these are some of the questions that I don't intend to answer here, but you know maybe what what the, the people in the I see Hannah saying. I'm not going to give you those answers. I don't know them, um, but hopefully those 50 to 60 people will be able to flesh out you know the direction of this a little bit um, better. So if you're interested in this workshop, I think depending on when you're listening to the show, you can um, you can watch the stream um, at ac.arc.nasa.gov/nexus n e x s s, or you can watch the recorded videos if you're if you're listening to the show after the end of September, which you may well be. So I can't tell you exactly what will come out of the workshop or what will be discussed but you can see the schedule there as well some of the things they might be touching on would include um probably at the start radio for example radios that 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 one um, signal that we often think about when it comes to SETI. Um, this is low frequency radiation in the kind of megahertz to terahertz range. Um, where exactly you might have an intentional signal in that range is is, is a bit of a debate in the field, apparently. Um, but SETI suggests somewhere between 1.4 and 1.7 gigahertz, because this has um, what's known as the cosmic watering hole, which is a, a cool term for that window, um, uh, because it encompasses the natural frequencies of hydroxyl and hydrogen. So if you were going to maybe send a signal out, you might do it in that, in that, window. Um you could also look to optical signals, um, in the infrared and uh kind of ultraviolet as well, which might include um, you know, laser emissions. So you could have a potential source of these from intentional directed attempts at communication or from like Uh, Residual energy left over from like light sail propulsion propulsion techniques where you're pushing out a spacecraft using a laser Um, You could have laser beacons or even transit related signals. That could be an option Uh, if you if you're an alien uh, Astronomer and you know another alien astronomer is somehow looking at your world in transit Maybe maybe you can figure this out. You could leave them a signal to find in the transit signal Uh, perhaps or or alternatively, you could even mask your presence using, and this is an actual thing, chromatic cloaking techniques. So there was a very interesting paper on the archive by David Kipping uh, and Alex Ticci about chromatic cloaking, in which you could swamp the uh, natural transmission spectrum with artificial signals to obscure evidence of like biosignatures or pollutants or oxygen or whatever. Uh, so you could hide yourself if that was your um, your approach to SETI. Maybe it is, I don't know. Um, we could also look for high frequency signals so we're getting Hannah's face throughout this for the listeners, it's just just an absolute picture
1: why would you preemptively hide yourself? if you've hidden yourself then you already know there's advanced civilizations trying to kill you we should be looking for those guys instead of the ones hiding themselves they're hiding themselves for a reason Exactly. because no one's stupid enough to hide yourself for no reason at all, that is a waste of time energy and it's the most inefficient thing I just now, I mean, know.
2: it's not that I disagree with you, Hannah, but you're anthropomorphizing to some degree, because we just can't understand the intelligences that go behind these decisions. What it's something you could, you could say to every single potential option. <laughs> oh um, hey, look, it's possible. All they're saying is that it's possible that that could be a thing. Um, Okay, so also high frequency signals, x-rays. I mean, we're, we're pretty good at detecting x-rays from natural galactic sources, but um, you might remember that pulsars at one point were thought of as potentially artificial signals. So we're still not entirely sure we have all the natural signals of x-rays down, but, you know, that's, a, that's a, another, another area of research. Um, so something maybe a little bit more familiar are big things like big mirrors big artificial mega structures so we like mirrors on earth we put them in telescopes we launch them into space quite a lot so in theory you could have enormous mirrors like hundreds of meters uh, that could be used to send binary signals like one zero on off etc between Star systems between planets. Um, they could also be placed in orbit as a terraforming mechanism. If your planet's getting a little bit too warm, you could be reflecting starlight away uh, from the planet, or you could even be directing that um, that starlight for like a, a solar array, for example. And uh, we could maybe spot those mirrors by accident. Um, so other structures uh, which are detectable on the planetary system scale may include the hypothetical Dyson sphere, of course, which is a structure built by a very advanced civilization to partially or entirely uh, kind of encapsulate their star to capture all of its energy. Um, so this, as, uh, as our listeners might recall, uh, was a potential one of the more out there explanations for the anomalous behavior of the star KIC 8462852, otherwise known as Tabby star or Borosian star. So it's not that, it's just dust. Just dust. Um, <laughs> there are still people we
0: saying the dust. <laughs> the dust is small bits of Dyson sphere. I, honestly, hey,
2: I, I, I guess it could be. They want a Dyson sphere real bad. Yeah, basically, really um, that's one thing we're going to be looking for, uh, along with maybe neutrinos. Um, so you know, these are subatomic elementary particles, very good at propagating through stuff. Maybe if we knew how to manipulate them, we could uh, we could use them for communication. Um, There could also be stellar pollution uh, manipulation. Um, So there are actually suggestions from organization on Earth. There's one called Long Now, um, which would deliver artificial isotopes uh, or artificial elemental mixes into the sun's photosphere, which would then imprint a very clear intentional signal onto the star uh, that would allow to be detectable. Alternatively, yeah, a sufficiently advanced civilization could also alterna- alter the coronal activity itself to somehow induce like a modulated artificial signal, uh, perhaps using magnetic field interactions for some reason. Uh, <laughs> as a means of communication between stars or planets, uh, I- I'm not too sure. Um, you know, you could even, on the very extreme side of things, dump matter into collapsed stars, neutron stars, or at the accretion disks around black holes to produce like massive, powerful... Radio transmitters for interstellar communication. So cool! So cool to think about this stuff. Um, other things that are cool and are maybe a little bit more in our wheelhouse are looking for big molecules in the atmospheres of planets. So technological c- civilizations end up maybe intentionally or unintentionally introducing large molecules into the atmospheres of their planets, and these would produce complex band structures that we would be able to think. Oh, you know, might flag up a few, uh, you know, a few uh, cause cause a few eyebrows to, write it, to be raised. Um, And these actually could be intentionally engineered as signalling messengers, if that was something we wanted to do, um, which would then really excite some people if they were to find them, or they could be more unintentional, um, perhaps as in the case of CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, in the Earth's atmosphere. So these are molecules that are detectable with the same technology that we have at like parsecs away. Uh, and a very clear evidence of industry is there's no natural means of producing CFCs uh, as far as I know. So if, you know, an alien astronomer had been paying attention to our atmosphere since like the late 70s or 80s, they may already know something's going on on the planet. Um, as it is, and that that something doesn't really mind destroying the planet's atmosphere. So then these alien astronomers might have real difficulty into understanding what this decision was all about. Maybe they're having a meeting right now to discuss, you know, and maybe conclude that we're really different and an unknowable kind of intelligence, and our decisions can't be comprehended within their limited cultural linguistic framework. We're just too complex and unintelligible. Like, why would we be doing this when we know it's destroying the atmosphere? Well, the answer is that we actually just aren't that intelligent and didn't realize it was going to do it, um, which is something maybe they didn't consider, but who knows. Talking of other unintelligible things that we do sometimes, um, bombs and warfare release huge amounts of energy. Um, so particularly, you know, high energy ordnance like nuclear weaponry, um, which apparently could result in a kind of a temporary burst of brightness on the order of like a billionth that of the sun. So a contrast of like 10 to the minus 9, which is, um, which is detectable. Um, And this would, of course, also leave behind uh, artificial uh, heavy isotopes in the atmosphere, which would be or could be used um, for, um, you know, for for, for detecting um, advanced civilizations undergoing warfare. Um, We could also put these nuclear weapons, if we so wanted to, uh, out into the planetary system and use them intentionally for interstellar signaling. Um, You know, if we were to detonate them in sequence or, or something along those lines. So I'm getting there. I'm just wrapping up with the final the final topic, which might be stuff like probes, artifacts, you know, storage mechanisms. So these are like less remote in terms of uh, you know how we detect them, but more uh, along the lines of of, uh, of what Dan is going to talk about. So you know these are going to be much more much more direct things that we could actually uh, interact with, you know, probes, for example. So the the idea that you know we could transmit um, uh, information using a probe is is, is one that's quite um, quite well established. Uh, We could go all the way down to the micro scale on this, so you could uh, envision a situation in which DNA wrapped in some sort of protective membrane was sent out to a distant planetary system, you know, maybe directed at it, that uh, perhaps billions of years later, we could then seed it with life or, you know, or for example. Um, you could think about the Voyager probes, um, the Voyager probes that were sent out from Earth in the 1970s to explore the outer solar system. So they were interplanetary when they started, but now that they've entered interstellar space, um, and will technically last as long as the universe does, uh, or until, of course, they impact something or intercepted. Now, in that latter case, um, the, both those spacecraft include uh, a lot of information, not just the data that they they took, of course, but also, information about humanity, which is encoded on golden disks um, uh, containing you know, uh, gigabytes of information about the Earth and its people at that time. Um, it's a much slower means of transmitting information, but it's arguably the safest means. So, those are you know, a whole heap of options from the top of my head. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, I've scoured the, the internet, I've scoured the literature um, as to what might be discussed in Houston this week. So, Dan, it makes sense to ask you a couple of questions about it, because you're going to be there actually in person. So I guess to start with, how does your expertise fit into the into the kind of scope of the workshop? What do you see yourself contributing?
3: Um, I mean, first of all, I just want to see what's going up. So first of all, I am going there with curiosity. And also, I think the workshop itself is really just about collecting information from the communities. Yeah.
2: So um, the, the workshop is essentially being designed to try and decide where the best place to, to spend that money is. So one of my follow-up questions were going to be, where do you see that being the most useful? Where's the investment going to be, in your opinion? Uh,
3: me, of course. me the, <laughs> of course. Give me the money would obviously be the best investment of that money. <laughs> so um, <laughs> no, so, the, so the idea is, So I, I also did a lot of work on, uh, um, on Kepler data or some work on Kepler data, especially to get... To measure effects that you can't get in a single uh, in a single transit or in a single light curve just by stacking the information of many systems to get really subtle signals so one application was, for example to look for exomoons another one was looking for exo which you can't find in an individual system but by stacking many systems you can get at least like a statistical signature of these effects so this is one thing i want to present just to uh, uh, the idea that we might be able to add the signals of a couple of, of, of sources to eventually get to our signal. And the other one would be to um, to apply some of the AI techniques that we worked for, with you for example this year at uh, the NASA Frontier development Lab. So I started a little collaboration with one of the folks from Nvidia that we met during this workshop And our idea is basically to use LRO data so um, images from the moon, lunar surface and then we want to train an AI on finding the Apollo landing sites and then if the AI is able to find the Apollo landing sites in the LRO data we just want to see what else it finds so maybe it finds crashed UFOs or previous earth civilizations who already landed Apollo uh, on there (laughs) and So it's, it's all about the training set right most likely it's not finding anything I mean at least I heard there's one lost Russian probe So one Russian probe uh, crashed on the moon that no one knows where so our goal is to at least find that one and then just see So that's that's one of the applications, and then you can you know Once you train an AI on them, you can do the same exercise with MRO data. So mass uh, mass surface images so that's that's one of the ideas that I want to present. So, so looking much more for
2: like uh, you know inter-solar system artifacts basically, as opposed to some of the like
3: radio SETI, for example. And and that's just like a general. I think uh, techno signatures are always going to be some sort of anom- anomalies or, or outliers, and that's what AI is really good good for. You know, finding these weird needles in big haystacks. So this is probably what I'm going to argue for to you know maybe fund a challenge at FDL next year to do that kind of work.
2: Great. That sounds fascinating. Um, and I think depending on when this episode goes out, you can either watch the live stream of this or there'll be some recorded recorded videos from that live stream, I can imagine. So if you're interested in this, listening along, um, then check out those videos, no doubt. So it's been a little break since our last Exocast, so I guess a lot of news, a lot of planets have built up in the interim, and Hannah is here to tell us all about them.
1: Uh, So I have decided this time to not give you a rundown of every archive paper uh, that's happened in the last two months, because that's going to, well, one, it's not going to be very useful, and two, it's just going to give you all a headache. Uh, So I'm going to try and keep this short, but obviously a lot has been going on. So first, for those diehards that really need to know about all of the new planets, here's a quick rundown of what I found in my ADS links. So we have Wasp 189b, Epic 211 nine six four eight three zero which is multiple planets in an open cluster uh another epic list of epic numbers that are far too long for me to say uh, epic two one one six eight two five four four b two four six eight five one seven two one b we have six new radial velocity planets hd five five six nine six nine hd nine eight seven three six hs nope that must have been a d next to each other on the keyboard. I'm an idiot yeah. and can't type. Very close yeah. together. <laughs> <laughs> HD uh, 148164, HD 203473, HD 211810. We have 10 new Hat South planets from HATS 60 to 69B. That was nice. That's a nice sequential numbers <laughs> for us there. There are 116 transiting candidates in the test CVZ over the Antarctic found with the AST32 instrument and six candidates from a northern circumpolar study for future test searches. So uh, I'm going to stick with TESS, and we have seen the first papers from TESS candidate slash real planet things gracing the archive. <laughs> um, I would like to note that these are not peer reviewed and accepted yet. They are all publications which state that they have been s- submitted and none of them have peer-reviewed yet. So, anyway, onwards. Uh, the first announcement was from an internal test team, um, and that was a small planet orbiting the star Pi Men c. uh Pi Men c actually already has a Jupiter-sized world in a very wide, highly eccentric orbit, which was detected by radial velocity measurements. But this actually meant that there's years and years of really nice data on this star which they were able to use when they observed a transit of this planet to disentangle what that mass of the planet would be. Now very quickly following the paper on Archive which detailed this new planet in a 6.27 day orbit there was a second paper which then showed a discrepancy of around 6 sigma on the density of that planet um so there's been the first test planet and the first paper kind of showing that they can't quite get the same thing for that same test planet it's
0: quite controversial too those two papers because uh the test team officially announced it and then another team used the test alerts which are supposed to be for like starting follow-up and published the test alert data as like look we found this but I don't think they were technically. Well not supposed including to do any <laughs>
2: of the test people on the paper as well. None of the test people are actually included on that paper yeah. either. So yeah, a
0: little a little controversial is the
2: first first planner candidate.
1: Yeah, it seems like it. it, it
0: in in this of... in this case I would trust the test team. Because they have all the data to use and their numbers are more trustworthy than the guys who took the light curve from the Tessalets.
1: Well, there we go then. You heard it here. Uh, Another small planet has been announced from TESS, LHS 3844, um, and this has been dubbed a Hot Earth, which I think requires a little bit more caveat than just that in the title. Um, What does this mean? Well, in this case, it basically means that it's something that's really small and really close to its star. So uh, I would Hot Mercury? Uh, I would hold off on that <laughs>
2: or just Mercury,
1: <laughs> just
2: Mercury.
1: I don't know. Um, so there's a huge caveat that I have with that title that they need to remove. But other than that, um, basically what they did was they they sh- they took the test data that shows that there's this planet there. They actually have it in their MURF database as well. So MURF is a ground based. Uh, detection mission which is looking at small stars so you can see smaller planets and uh, those two data sets they're able to kind of use both of them and pin down a kind of radius measurement on that so it's a very small planet that they found around a very small star. Um, What I would like to say is just a little bit of an advert here this is all down to how you analyze the data and what the data holds and, and all of that so if you are interested in the tools that are used or will be used for tests we are actually having a test data workshop here at Space Telescope next February, which is focused just on how you analyze the data. And this is for things like uh, this is for transits, this is for flares, this is for circumbinary planets, this is for disks, this is for anything that you can find in TESS's field of view. Uh, and we're welcoming everybody from the community who does data analysis or creates public tools to come along and discuss how you would analyze such a wide subset of data. So you can find out uh, more about that at Um So that's next February. Before dealing with all the science, we want to deal with what this data means. So that will be really interesting to bring the community together. But let's move on to some papers and some big reports. Um, There's been a couple of really interesting papers, and I think we talked about some of them last time. So I'm just going to remind people again that, you know, we're always doing these characterization studies. There's papers continuously both about how we characterise planets and what that actually means and how the star imprints on that. And there's been lots of papers on how the star is impacting what we're measuring. And there was a really, really nice one that I liked by Corley et al. And they looked at high resolution spectral lines as indicators for activity of the star itself. And what that would mean for the measurements we make of the planet. And one of the really nice things that I want to point out from that study is that they find that the helium one line, which is that uh, 10805 angstrom line that was used to detect helium in the atmosphere of the uh, Neptune sized world WASP 107b by Jessica Spake and her team earlier this year. That line is not affected by stellar activity as strongly as a lot of other lines. So it should be made, and this is their conclusion, it should be made a top priority for probing the extended atmosphere of exoplanets. So that was a really nice study that details it beautifully with lots of not just scientific graphs, but also illustrative Diagrams which help understand how activity affects different types of stars and the distribution of those active regions and the effect it will have on a transit. So, I thought that that was a conclusion that I should highlight here on Exocast. Now, on to some of just the more big, broad news rather than deal to open through planets. And one of them that we haven't covered is that Kepler's back, baby.
2: Can't kill it. Can't kill it. Can't kill it. <laughs>
1: It has resurrected itself again. I mean, I don't know how many times this is. And it has started K2 Campaign 19 science operations. Now, after our last episode of Exocast in July, it it wasn't actually clear whether it would even have enough fuel to reorient itself and do a data downlink of the Campaign 18 data. That happened uh, on August 9th. It managed to successfully do that. It promptly went to sleep. It went into kind of its... uh, I'm going to try and save myself mode. But then on August 24th, the, the telescope woke up again and it was ready to go. Um, it's not entirely clear how much fuel is left. One of the thrusters seems to be acting a little bit funny, um, but the data's ready to go. Campaign 19 has started. Uh, it's probably gonna be its last home run. Uh, we will have to see. It seems to have a life of its own now. So way kepler's yeah. back fun yeah no i just it thought is. that was cool all of these different robots we make seem to just have a personality yeah. of their own that they just kind of take on yeah i mean i'm universe. i'm
2: all for anthropomorphizing our, our spacecraft i think it's fantastic cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. uh Another big thing for exoplanets, the National Academies for Science, Engineering and Medicine hosted a briefing on exoplanet science strategy and recommendations by the community through white papers, which was a call that we detailed earlier on another exocast. Um, the committee was led by David Charbonneau and Scott Gowdy, and they put forward their, their main findings in this report that was then broadcast. So... I'm just going to go through a number of the recommendations. This is by no means a full list of them. And I apologize if I've missed anything out, but I, I just want to give a kind of little bit of a summary of what the main goals are going to be for the future or the, the main goals that are being considered by the community um, to push in the future. So they recommended a number of missions and technologies, uh, including the continued development of large ground-based telescopes, namely the, the ones obviously run by in part america the the tmt and in, which is in the north and then the gmt in the south they also pushed for the launch of w first which we've talked about a lot here on exocast um, especially with spectroscopic instruments on it for coronography on board which allows the testing of how we will do advanced coronography in the future for directly imaging planets and this is this is kind of coming in the wake of those cuts that we've talked about, um, budget cuts. So it will be interesting to see how WFest pans out. They have also uh, backed the need for a very large space-based direct imaging mission. Now, that's why they pushed the WFIRST initiative is because you need the testing of the instrument and everything so that a large mission in the future, which is dedicated in some part to direct imaging, can be put forward. Um, And in the review, they cover uh, things towards Habex, Louvois and OST, but they really focused on Habex and Louvois a lot more. And I'm not sure why that might have been, but they also didn't mention Lynx at all, which is not a direct imaging mission. Now, in terms of more immediate projects, um, the team pushed for a community legacy as part of the early James Webb operations, which would serve as essentially an open archive to the whole exoplanet community. And this would be to observe, you know, some target list across all instruments that would immediately be open to absolutely everybody and anybody to analyze now, what to what extent that is and to what targets and, and all of that, it's not clear. They didn't really mention a huge amount more towards that, but just, I think, the drive for something as open as humanly possible to the whole community. Uh, another thing that they've pushed and, and we've talked about a lot here is the radial velocity follow up of small planets. Now, technology has been getting so much better on radial velocity. But we need to keep pushing that. We're still not at the point where we can do rapid follow up of very small planets uh, to get those masses that we we very vitally need to understand any more about these planets. So radial velocity is something that really needs to be pushed on, on all fronts. And I know that the European Space Agency and the European funding boards are also trying to push for these kinds of things. So that's good to see that hopefully we will have better mass measurements of these small planets in the future. And uh, finally, they they push for a big kind of overarching goal uh, or board or something. They're not allowed to push for funding necessarily, but something which encompasses all of the disciplines associated with exoplanet science, which includes heliophysics, Earth studies, biology, geology, astronomy, planetary science, and, and all of those come together to do exoplanets, and we've, we explain that on Exocast all the time. It's just so much shit you can include that we need something that allows us to do that, basically. We need to be allowed to cross those lines and talk about different things and bring other people in with the ability to say, listen, I've got enough funding for your time, for this amount of your time, so that we can discuss this and we can use your expertise. So that's something that I think is is really useful. Now, they, they break all of this down into near, middle and future term timelines and and goals essentially but i I think one thing that needs to be made abundantly clear is that if something is in the middle or future timelines it doesn't necessarily means you wait around for something to happen they require us starting them now so that they can be completed in those middle and future timelines so it's really kind of a ramping up and we need to be pushing all of these goals so that some of those more difficult ones have the time to be completed so That breakdown of the timeline, if you see any of those, it doesn't mean, oh, we'll do that in the future. It means we need to start doing that now so that it actually makes sense in the future. And then finally, one of the the most important things I think they covered in the report is the applicability of all of these studies and all of these timelines uh, in a statement on diversity and inclusion, calling the community to be more vigilant in cases of misconduct and open to all members equally. And I think that's really important. And I, I like the fact that they included that in their statement and made sure that that was one of the major points that they put forward. So I, I think that's, that's really important. And that actually leads on to my final news, which uh, is slightly off topic, but I wanted to put it in here. Uh, and that is that Professor Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell was awarded a three million dollar breakthrough prize in fundamental physics for her discovery and work in pulsars. Now, she has already been considered a legend in all of the communities for her leadership and work across the the science that she's done with pulsars, but also in terms of the work that she does uh, in science communication and talking with schools and everything. But she, she's further solidified that by donating the entire prize to the Institute of Physics. And that money has to go towards PhD studentships for underrepresented groups and give equal opportunities to a wider range of candidates in physics. So there will be a PhD studentship every single year. I think they're going to they're planning on doing a number of them which is for uh, inclusion and underrepresented groups uh, across the UK using the Institute of Physics from that prize money. So I think that's really important. Also to note that the first exoplanets discovered were around pulsars. And if we hadn't had her discovering pulsars and her pivotal work in that, first exoplanets wouldn't have been discovered.
2: Very true. Yeah, she's, uh, as you said, an absolute legend in the field, only solidifying her legendary status through that fantastic donation. Should really just serve to make the community more representative of the wider community that it serves, which it should be.
1: So that's it from the news. I hope that was a a good rundown. There's been so much and there were so many papers to go through. Uh, There's loads of really interesting stuff out there. Uh, So if there's anything specific... Then tweet about it, share it, put it on our Facebook page, and, and make sure that everybody knows about
2: it. Yeah, I mean, we might need to consider our format here. I mean, Tess is expecting to find ten thousand planets, right? We can't go through all of those individually every ExoCast episode. <laughs> it's going to get a a little bit a little bit too much.
0: Well, we just need to talk about the interesting ones, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. They're
0: all interesting.
1: They're
2: no. all interesting. No, here. really no, yeah, not. We can, that's true. We can leave. We can leave out the hot Jupiters. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think so.
1: Oh, watch <laughs> it. We never talked about every single Kepler no, yeah, planet. That was That's discovered. true. That is
2: true. Yeah. There are there are certain ones that are interesting for for multiple reasons, you know. Usually the way that they were found or, you know, some combination of factors that makes them stand out a little bit more. And I'm sure exactly. those those planets will always come to the fore.
0: Yeah. So, this month Dan is going to adopt a planet. So, which one have you gone
3: for, Dan? So, I chose uh, HE209, my favorite planet.
0: I was surprised we had not chosen this because it is such had. a an iconic exoplanet, and yet it's not on our list. We did. Uh, I did check, Hannah, before you ask.
3: Okay. I checked too, obviously. So, yep, it's not on the list. It was waiting for me to choose it, I guess.
0: So, what's there special about HD two hundred No, four five eight. Is that the next three? Yes, yes.
1: four five eight.
3: So it was the first observed transit, or there were like two observations at the t- same time. I think the other was TRES-1, I think. So there were like two, two almost parallel observations of a transit. And the story is that observation or that detection of the first transit actually got me into the field because I lost the bet. <laughs> so this is, this is how you choose your topic in astronomy nowadays. You were betting bet. it
0: didn't transit, or...?
3: Yeah, so I was, so we were for like a friend's birthday, we were driving to Amsterdam and like someone on that ride to Amsterdam, one of my friends in the car said, you know, you heard about they, they found this transiting exoplanet or they found a a, a planet that was basically dimming its host star. And I was like, yeah, no way, I would have heard about it. I knew about RV Planets and you know, I totally would have heard about it and I I made a bet. Yeah, that didn't happen, but then it actually happened. So I wasn't checking the archive every day at that time, obviously. (laughs) And yeah, and then I lost that bet about the first transit that it actually happened. And then I thought, yeah, that might be, let's make a career out of it. And then, you know, no, I'm still here doing transits after losing the bet about the first transit. So this is why HD 209 actually had a huge impact on, on my life, in in that sense, so this is why I'm happy to adopt it today.
0: Oh, excellent! Was it was it not big news when it transited then? I'm surprised if the, if it wasn't.
3: Yeah, it was probably big news, but I was probably looking at other news at that age. I mean, I'm not <laughs> that old, so I sure. was. Uh, I think I was like an undergrad student at that time, and uh, probably busy planning that trip to Amsterdam and not looking the science news every day. So,
0: <laughs> fair enough. So I guess, Hannah, have you observed two or nine, or have, have, have maybe you have as well, Dan?
3: Yeah, one of my first observations at Keck was at Keck, and then at VLT was a transit of, or actually, an eclipse. We even we even tried eclipses from the ground at that time.
1: Um, could you tell us a little bit about the planet itself?
3: Uh, it's just a hot Jupiter. or it's a hot just Jupiter. Just a hot
1: Jupiter. <laughs> You yeah.
3: offended
2: Hannah there. Yeah, they're all pretty much the same, right?
3: It's my my interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> wrong people? I got proposals rejected because it's just another hot Jupiter.
1: Yes, but those people aren't allowed to do tax anymore. It's not a constructive <laughs> argument against anything.
3: It's true.
2: H- Hannah's passionately for hot Jupiters, as you can obviously tell. And, you know, to be fair, she has won me over. She has definitely won me over in the last two years. Very interesting. I mean,
1: Nine is one of the really nice ones. And I am very surprised we haven't adopted it before mm. because it, it pretty much sits right in the middle of the distribution for what you would expect a hot Jupiter to be uh, in terms of its size, in terms of its mass, in terms of its temperature. It's kind of right there in the middle of all of the transitions that we would expect something to be happening. So uh, it's a really useful data point to compare to other planets when we're doing, ex- you know, comparative exoplanetology we're we're looking at one planet compared to another and and hg209 sometime you know somewhere in that mix every single time Uh, it also orbits a nice g0 star which is very quiet so you don't have to worry about the influences that's going to have on anything so it's it's very simple and very nice kind of standard candle i suppose for the field
0: well i guess the main reason it's so important is just because it's so bright right It, it is Am I right in thinking it's the brightest transiting hot Jupiter? Oh, no, because there's Celts ones. No. no. Yeah, also HD no. uh, 189 is... 189 is brighter. Uh, I thought that, but apparently in V it's 7.66, and and uh, HD 209 is
3: 7.65. So. <laughs> yeah. Who, who <laughs> thinks in optical? We're talking like infrared.
0: Okay, yeah. In infrared, I think it wins, but... No, I think it's a later
3: type star, so I think they... They switch when it when it comes to the it yeah. goes yeah. to the infrared. It becomes brighter in yeah.
0: But seven point six is still incredibly bright for a hot Jupiter, and that's one of the reasons that everyone in the field has observed it at some point, And there's so much information about it out there, right?
1: Yeah, it certainly makes it easier.
0: Well, thank you very much for adding it to our our strange bunch of growing exoplanets that we've adopted. Yeah,
3: thank yeah. you for having me. That was a lot of fun
1: good thanks for coming on yeah, yeah
0: thanks for being on the show Dan.
1: so thank you so much for joining us for this uh this tour this week of just kind of crazy science from the air in planes down to techno signatures and the possibility of life out there trying to mask itself from us on purpose how rude uh we will be returning next month uh, with more exciting exoplanet news and views and we will be joined by a new special guest and even more excitingly, we will be announcing the lineup of EXO Cup 2018. That's and happening. That is right. The EXO Cup is back. Excited. Back. It's gonna be it. So, get together all of the facts that you've got. Reclaim the hashtag from the K-pop group. Always tricky we've got this they've, they've stuck a little image on the end but we got this how do we do that how can we do that Exocup with like a little Exocup logo have, they have
0: their own emoji now oh.
1: they have their own emoji now
0: on Exoplanet yeah it's it's, it's so
1: infuriating we have to reclaim <laughs> our space everybody <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, until then please <laughs> check out all of our previous shows on our website Exocast.org and on iTunes follow us on Twitter at Exocast tweet everything you can with Exoplanet hashtag and like us on Facebook so until next time, everyone. Bye.
0: Bye-bye. See ya.
3: Bye-bye.
1: XA class.